0: This is a sermon podcast of the First Baptist Church of Boulogne in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcbalone.org. Please take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off from this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we'll only go over about a half of this chapter because um, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, uh, he uh, will make a, 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 a change in topic. And so um, uh, we're going to look at one of the topics tonight and then our next uh, time together, we'll finish out this chapter Tonight's sermon title is called The Stain of Conflict Upon Unity. uh, That's been the dominant theme of the book, is unity. Getting this church to realize the importance of unity. That's why he first started out with a reminder of who they were in Christ. Because unity in the church... Doesn't really happen, and it's not going to be nearly as effective until we realize our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the body of Christ, when we get together, uh, how do we act and treat one another? And this is going to be one of the, uh, those, those types of um, issues that uh, Paul is dealing with t- t- tonight, or in this text, that we will be looking at tonight. But listen to these Bible verses, Psalm 133 and verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. In verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. How many of you knew that the Lord hates that? Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Dr. Adrian Rogers in a sermon. Matter of fact, it was the very last sermon series he ever preached. At Bellevue uh, Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, he preached uh, a sermon series on church unity uh, right before his retirement. He said of those who sow discord and gossip in the church, it does two things. Number one, you dishonor the head, which is Jesus. And number two, you wound and mutilate yourself because you are part of the body of Christ. It's always the little children who squabble and fuss and bicker and and, uh, and, and, and argue. It always comes from immaturity. Have you noticed that the overwhelming majority, I mentioned it this morning, the overwhelming majority of divisions in the church nowadays don't even come over matters of theology. I dare say someone could come in here and preach modalism and probably get away with it. Matter of fact, the doctrine of modalism is prevalent in some Christian writings. And you say, well, what in the world is modalism? How many believe in the triune nature of God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, coexisting, co-eternal, one essence and three distinct persons. That's the traditional understanding of the doctrine of Trinity. Modalism means and teaches that God can only be one of those at one time. It's modes. He, you know, it's a different mode depending on what he needs to be at the time. That was confirmed as heresy centuries ago. In church councils. See, we can't bicker and argue over that because half the time the church is ignorant of those matters. But we will argue over music. Someone seating in your pew at church, we all know that you are assigned a second. I actually am in favor of that. I really am. I think it's easier to keep track of you, I think it's easier for me to know whether you're here or not or missing. Uh, if you're trying to skip, it's easy to skip church when you can, you know, move around and whatever. And I lose track. I'm just now getting to where I know if you're not here because you're not in your seat that you normally sit in. Yeah. Now, I, I will compliment you. Thank you for not being the church that so far I have never heard that type of complaint. And I'm glad uh, that you're not that way so far as I know. But those are exactly the kinds of things that the devil will want you to say. Let me just start out in this sermon by making a declaration that I just want a hearty amen if you will contend to live this way. I want the Lord to know and would have us all to say, Together as a church, the First Baptist Church of Boulogne, we will be one in the bond of love. Paul continues his theme of judgment and how the Corinthian church had it absolutely backwards. That's what's going on here in chapter six. They were more than willing to ignore sin within their midst but also more than willing to take things going on inside the church and take it to a pagan, secular court system that did not have God's nor the church's best interest in mind. They were willing to exacerbate conflict in the church by taking it to authorities, taking issues to authorities who would rule not in the interest of biblical truth, but just for financial gain. conflict was costing the church more than it was having to pay. Now, what does Paul talk about here? Well, let's read this text together. You can follow along with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand together along with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How many of you knew that? Do you not know, or excuse me, uh, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And once again, Paul points out, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong?" Why not rather just be defrauded? That's a statement. But you yourselves wrong and defraud and even your own brothers. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. There it is. It's in the Bible. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We heard that list already today, have we not? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Those are some humongous theological terms there, Paul is pointing out. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please do more and be more than my words. Father, may your word be dominant in this sermon and may my mere opinion um, be as closely lined with the Word of God in its interpretation and application as it can possibly be. May you bless the Word as it has been read, Lord, to this congregation and to all who hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, I've got some points that this text uh, will help us with uh, in, in applying this to our life. The stain of conflict upon unity, boy, it is quite a stain. It's hard to erase, but it can be erased. But I believe that there are some things that if we, if we think carefully about this text, we can actually avoid this altogether. Not conflict, but improperly trying to resolve conflict. We will, we will have conflict, I promise, as long as you have air in your lungs as long as you walk into this church and we do it all together Sunday after Sunday, at one point in time, we're gonna disagree on something, okay? Sometimes they're trivial. Sometimes they may be um, more important than, than other things. But the fact is we will have conflict. But the first thing I want to remind you is number one, conflict represents a poor testimony to the lost. Anytime we have it, we must be very wise in how we handle it because as soon as a lost pagan world will hear about it, they're going to do all they will use it for their game. Well, that's why I don't go to church anymore. That I don't want to go to church with all those hypocrites. I heard one pastor say, "Well, I'd rather go to church with a bunch of them than go to hell with all of them." Or a few of them, I should say. Paul asks, why do we present our matters to the unrighteous? Why do we take our matters of conflict to unbelievers? You see, his first concern, much like what we saw this morning as Paul was writing about purity, he says, we've got to keep in mind that there is a lost and dying world that evaluates the power and the potential of the gospel Relative to how it's working in our lives. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, why do you go to law before the unrighteous instead of saints? Now, now this argument is actually twofold. Not only do they not know how to uh, uh, ratify biblical truth to resolve a conflict, but why would we even want to go there to begin with? Not saying that, I mean that you're going to avoid these times, there'll be some conflicts you just can't avoid. But what were they taking? Well, it was civil matters. And that's what Paul was arguing against. The reason why we know this is because Paul was quite clear in Romans chapter 13 that he was definitely for, and so should we be definitely for, uh, the the role of courts in criminal matters, in law enforcement. Uh, There's definitely a distinction between the criminal and then the civil. Verse 5 tells us about the spiritual ability of the church. Look there in verse 5, he says, Can it be that there was even no one wise enough to settle a dispute? In other words, is there no one there that can think through this thing and help resolve this in a biblical way? I'm saying this to your shame, church. Do you not have someone that could act as a judge among you and, and as an arbiter to settle this matter? Well, as long as we will put our personal interests and comfort and opinions before biblical truth and Christian maturity, then no, we will never have someone wise among us. But we can if we grow up in maturity. We grow out by our witness and grow inward in regard to the influence of personal taste. What do I mean? Well, you're all going to have tastes, okay? How many of you prefer steak over fish? Okay, How many of you like your steak well done? Raise your hand. How many of you say, I don't like my steak well done at all. I prefer medium or medium rare. You see? Okay, those are tastes. Okay, I, I, That's what we have. You're going to have tastes. But sometimes we just need to bury those tastes. Over time, as we grow in Christ, we will. Learn to bury our tastes and personal preferences. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Bible says in Philippians 2, look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. So if there's any way to have personal taste, I'm going to prefer yours over mine. In other words, I will I will choose you over me. It's not worth a division. When the law see us bickering and squabbling, we invalidate the power of the gospel, just as Satan himself would. Conflict is, and I I, I believe this all of my heart. Conflict is, and always will be satanic. Because how do we know this? God is the author of peace. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of what? Peace. He's a God of peace. He doesn't sow discord. And if I could kind of make it really hit home for us, we live in a community that's rather static, do we not? We don't have people moving in every month by the thousands or even the hundreds. The people that are, are, are here now, their families have been here for generations typically. We don't have a lot of newcomers to Hilliard. Folkestone, Callahan, we, it just we're not a metropolitan area. All the more reason why we must guard our church's testimony. Sometimes you may have only one shot to convince someone of the gospel and to get them as a part of your congregation. And we likewise ought to mourn those who have made long lasting decisions because they have heard of conflict within our own congregation. Not only is it a poor testimony to the loss, but number two, conflict prohibits the church from living to its full potential. If you look uh, in verse 2, Paul does introduce something that uh, I, I will admit, and, and I know that you would be run right along with me. I am not as well versed in this area of spiritual truth as I would like to be, although I know that biblically it exists. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, what does that mean? How will that be fleshed out in the end? I, I personally am... am am a little uh, uh, misunderstanding and and, and don't have as much insight in this as I would like. He says, he says, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? What I do know is this, this church and likewise us, we can let conflict hinder God's perfect plan for us and the plan that he has for our congregation. When we allow conflict to come in and divide us. What I do know is that Scripture affirms, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, he said especially of the apostles that they're going to sit on the uh, 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, In this text here, it's extended in general to, to the followers of Christ. Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, until the saint, uh, ancient of days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. In other words, in an eschatological viewpoint, I mean, looking towards the end before God and in the process is God setting up his final kingdom. Final heavens, final earth. We as a church play a part in the final judgment. He says, Paul is arguing, guys, we know this to be true. And if we know that we are that in the end, why can't we use some of that authority and power in the here and now? Jesus gave his authority to his disciples in Matthew 10 and sent them out. He likewise gave us authority in Acts one eight. He says, you will remain here in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And when he does, you're going to be my witness. My my witness is in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I I really do believe, and, and maybe I'll find a way to squeeze it in this year, but I think maybe a biblical reminder by a sermon series reminding us of our kingdom authority is a good reminder for our church today. Man, I'm telling you, God has afforded us so much, has he not? He's given us so much to do. And I believe authority invested by him. I mean, wow. Think about the ways in which we mistreat it and abuse it and squander it over division and conflict. Paul is in in essence saying because of this, how dare we share that divine authority with heathen who will have no interest in the things of God. They don't have your interest in mind. They're not concerned about your testimony. They're not going to be concerned about the kingdom. They're not concerned about the Lord. Which leads us to number three. Conflict presents everyone as already having lost. Look at verse six. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You've already lost. No matter what the judge says, no matter when that gavel strikes, and no matter what that judgment is, you may have your millions in the end, but you have already lost. No one gains. Have you ever been through a conflict? No matter what it was. You've been through a conflict and afterwards you say, well, we sure handled that one well, didn't we? Probably not. Because you're probably like me. When you get hot-headed, right? I'm as red-blooded as it gets. Anger, I say this not, I say this to my shame. Anger is an issue with me. And more often than not, when I get angry, I never pat myself on the back. I usually have to offer and issue apologies. See, we're letting our flesh rule instead of the spirit. That's why it's it's a defeat for us. We know that the flesh is ruling because he reminds us via two questions in the latter part of verse seven. He says, why not rather suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded as if to remind us that ought to be our first position? You say, well, pastor, you mean you won't let people take advantage of us? Well, actually, now that you bring it up, we surely took advantage of Jesus, didn't we? See, maybe, maybe we should just let folks treat us the way that they treated Jesus as our identity in Christ. That's what the Bible says. But Jesus says, if, if they reviled me, don't, don't you think they're going to do that to you? The servant is no greater than the master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. In Romans chapter 8, one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture ever recorded if you want to be lifted up, read Romans 8. But don't start at the good stuff. Start at the beginning of Romans 8. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. All right, that's the good stuff. But we've got to keep reading. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh cannot do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness required, requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh, now this is where it's going to start getting a little tricky for us. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile, to God, and, For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Maybe highlight that one. I don't know. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. I like how Paul phrases that. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What's he saying there? It ties it right back here to uh, to first Corinthians six, verse seven. We have decision whether or not we're going to live by the flesh and entertain and support the flesh, or are we going to live in the Spirit? Because when we choose to live in the Spirit, there's some things that we're just going to have to have a, a nature to give up, not necessarily hold on to, which means that sometimes people are going to take advantage of us. It means sometimes that we are going to suffer wrong. It means sometimes that we are going to be defrauded. Which leads to my next point, number four, conflict ignores the cost of discipleship. If you accepted Christ thinking that all of your troubles are over, if you accepted Christ thinking that, well, I'm off the hook, if you accepted Christ thinking that, well, when we have conflict or whatever, then, you know, I'll always come out, you know, smelling like a rose, I'm sorry. We don't have that guarantee. You see, conflict twists and disregards Christ's command that at times we will suffer and that to suffer is equal to our identity with him. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 8. The reason why we can enjoy all the promises later on in Romans 8 is because we have to realize that first of all, we are going to live by the spirit. We won't live by the flesh because to live by the flesh means we won't love God. We won't honor the commands of God. We ignore the cost of discipleship, I believe, because we have forgotten how divisive the gospel is. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus said, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms or for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. He says also that that he did not come to bring peace but a sword. That means the gospel will be divisive. In your family, it may have already been. You may be here tonight and you said, Pastor, I know exactly what that text is saying because when I chose to follow Christ with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, when I chose to love him with all that I am, I was shunned by members of my family. My husband won't even talk to me. My wife won't even talk to me. I've got issues with my family because of my choice to follow Jesus. So also our discipleship, our following Jesus on a day by day basis. Listen, conflict says that, that you conflict says that you must be the winner. If you're following Jesus day by day and you encounter conflict, that's what it's going to want to tell you. You gotta come out smelling like a rose. You're the one that's gotta prove your point. You're the one that's gotta win this argument. You gotta make your voice heard. That's not the way of the disciple. John chapter fifteen gives us some particular insight regarding this you may want to jot down that text i'll read it to you You don't have to necessarily turn there if you don't like but i am in john chapter 15 beginning in, in in verse 18 if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you if you are of the world the world will love you as its own but because you are not of this world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Listen, church, I'm telling you, it is possible, and and I believe right now a current reality that you can worship on Sunday morning with someone who's been in the church for years and not even know him. The parable of the sower tells us that this is possible. That of the seeds that were scattered, some, yes, they grew, they thrived, wonderful. Some that were scattered were quickly eaten by the birds, some sprouted quickly. You know those people. They, they, they sprouted real quickly and endured for a little while. The sun burnt down and just shoveled them up. They had zeal for like two weeks. But it's that other kind that I think is very prevalent. You see, part of that seed, it was scattered. It, it, it blossomed. It grew. Remember that flower bed? Illustration I was telling you about earlier. You see, the Bible says in the parable of the sower that, that, that the weeds and it started to come in, and it started choking out that little flower. Weeds did not come into my garden overnight. It took time, and can I tell you the number one? thing that grieves me in a church. I'll be honest with you. Number one thing that grieves me are those who get on fire for the Lord for a season. But it is so obvious and it is evident that the world is choking the love of Jesus out of them. And you could preach till you blew in the face. You can encourage and exhort. You can quote scripture, but it's falling on deaf ears not because you're doing it wrong, per se, although you can have wrong methods, but it's the fact that the Bible affirms that there are hearts that are just this way. Now, what I've just described to you in this parable of the sower, there's only a 25% chance of all those types of seeds and where they were scattered, there was only a 25% return. Maybe that's the reason why Billy Graham, I know he was quoted at one time saying it and other pastors have said it. Eight out of 10 people sitting in a pew are lost because we have been ignoring the cost of discipleship. We've, we've not been teaching it. We've not been preaching it. We've, we, we've only been focused on numbers. We, we just want to make sure that we fill this place. We want to make sure that we pay the bills. We want to make sure that we look good on paper, Can I tell you something? This is God's honest truth. I've never talked about the size of our church right up to our Sunday school numbers. Part of me thinks that's of the devil anyway because that's not indicative of the true growth of the true church. Numbers have their place. Record keeping has its place. But the effectiveness and the ability of this church is not based upon how many show up in Sunday school or morning worship or evening worship or Wednesday night. But then again, no pastor or no bylaws or constitution should ever have to keep reminding people you just need to be here when the, when the church doors are open. This cost of... of, of excuse me, this conflict was ignoring the cost of discipleship. Now, this is this was just one of the ways it was rearing its ugly head. They would allow everything to go on inside the church, but but the moment they felt threatened or, or felt like they were cheated, swindled, whatever, they're going to take someone, they're hauling them off to the court, suing them. Conflict is a worldly hatred of God and the things of God present among the people of God. Let me say that again. Conflict is a worldly hatred of God and the things of God present among the people of God. You say, Pastor, you go way too far. Uh, I think you're overstating it. I mean, after all, Pastor, we're all going to heaven. Isn't that what really matters? Why are you being so nitpicky? Well, first of all, I can't make that guarantee that we're all going to heaven. I don't know your heart. You don't know mine. Second, do not confuse the appearance of going in the same direction with everyone having the same mind. Let me illustrate it. Get on 995 at some point. You're all going in the same direction, are you not? But I guarantee you, you're not all going with the same purpose. You don't all have the same destination. You're not all going to the same place, but there's the appearance that well, yes, we're we're all going in the same way, right? No, there's different purposes, ideas, attitudes, expectations of the drivers around them. So it is here in the church, and that's where one of the roots of uh, the, the main uh, things that feeds into the conflict. We all have our ideas, our attitudes, our expectations of other church members around us. And Paul says that's. What you're doing, he says in verse 8, but what you're doing, you yourselves wrong and defraud your own brothers. Number five, conflict ignores the truth and consequences. Now this begins in verse 9 and it finishes out our text. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And again, he's restating it just like he did in verse five or or chapter five. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But that's what some of you were. You were washed. How? Washed in the blood. He's talking about their conversion. He's talking about their regeneration. You were sanctified. He's talking about how they were set apart. And immediately in Christ, when we, in, when, when we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, there is an immediate sanctification. It's called positional sanctification. My position changes because of who I am now in Christ. But then there is a progressive sanctification. It is the sanctification that I will be in the process of all the earthly years of my life that I'm growing more and more gradually, more and more into the image of Jesus. Because I'm learning more about him. Paul says, Paul is actually focusing on the the positional. And you were justified In other words, he's spending time making sure that they know that if they are in Jesus, they are just different people. You're different. I've been told I was different all my life. But it wasn't a compliment up until I was saved. I enjoy being different. Now, let's make something clear about this text. Paul is saying what the gospel does. Not that he ex- explicitly knows it for them. He could not testify on their behalf that he knows their exact position. What he is declaring that some of you were. Because he has first hand knowledge. Why? He was there when the church was planted and founded. I know that some of you were all of these things. But I know now that you're not. You need to be reminded that in Christ, you're just different people. And if we continue on the way that that we are on, you are ignoring the consequences. You're ignoring the truth about who you are in Jesus. He was giving them a dire warning that this type of behavior is not indicative of a life transformed and ruled by the gospel. You see, conflict is very serious business. It is way more serious than what sometimes we give it credit for. You see, Jesus declared that those who were not with him, if you're not gathering, you're scattering, he says in Matthew 12. silent, neutral, merely lends support to an error and in reality assists in the corrupting the church for which Jesus died. Matthew 5, verse 25. Interesting that tomorrow we're celebrating, uh, observing Martin Luther King Jr. Day. He actually said this about division. The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. Meaning, that this church, Corinthian church, and likewise we, got to be careful that we get rowdy over the right things. That we ignore and we let go the things that are not, uh, that, that are just over matters of taste or, or, or just preference. Let those things go. Don't let those things consume you. But in those moments and in those times, and we will have them, church. We will have them, church, when our faith is tested. When our doctrine and and the things that we stand for are challenged. In those points, we all rise up together with one voice. In those times of moral conflict, we must let our voices be heard. I first want to make a plea to those who are in an identity crisis. You may be here tonight and you just, maybe you're confused about whose you are. Are you Christ? Are you in Christ? If someone ask you, I mean, is, is, I know we talk about having Jesus in our heart. I want there's biblical merit to that. The theological picture of justification is actually us in Him. That's why we sing a song that's pretty accurate theologically. Are you washed in the blood? Are you covered in the blood of the Lamb? That's our identity. What are you offering this church right now in terms of conflict? Are you the source of gossip? Phone calling? backbiting, silence, immaturity. Do you really want our reputation to be hurt? Another question, what rules your heart? What rules my heart? Is it Jesus? To know and to make him known or or, or is it a set of preferences that must meet your standards or, or else? fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, it is only a unified church that is a growing church. We have many opportunities for us to make a real difference. Do you know that? I'm not saying this because I'm your pastor. I'm saying this because over, you know, this July will be fourth year I've been serving you. And thus far, I have learned the potential of you. And according to the potential in you, but most importantly to the promise of God, I don't believe that the gates of hell will ever prevail over us because Jesus has told us that. So why, knowing what we know about whose we are, whose we should be, the authority of Christ. Over us, why should we spend one more minute on things that won't ever matter in eternity? Stop majoring on the minors and let's focus on what really matters. That lives and souls are hanging in the balance. People are hurting, lost, dying, and going to a devil's hell if we don't do something. They are our neighbors. They are our coworkers. And they are also the people groups around this world whom nobody is going to. It's our job. So let us say once again, with a hearty amen, we will be one. In the bond of love. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word, which is sharper than any double edged sword, dividing joint and marrow, examining and knowing our hearts, our minds, and our intent. And Father, I believe, Lord, as it cuts us wide open, let us be receptive and responsive to his challenges to us and rejoice in who we are. Let us, God, rejoice in what You have made us to be and who we can become. Father, let us rejoice in the opportunities and the things that we have as a church to offer to this community and to this world, to the nations, to our neighbors, and every point in between. The fathers, we make... <clears throat> As we make these desires known and make these humble requests before you, let us also do a careful examination of our heart. Let us make sure that our standing before you is proper. Let us make sure, Father, that our standing with one another is proper. That we be willing to say, I'm sorry, I love you, please forgive me. Let us be one, Father, in the bond of love. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the First Baptist Church of Bologna in Hilliard, Florida. For more information, please visit www.fbcbalone.org.